You know, as uh, Steve was talking, I, I suddenly thought to myself, um, do you suppose God ever feels forsaken? You know, we know about times when we feel lonely, when we feel like, gosh, where's the support? Where's the, where's the love? Do you suppose there ever a moment when God feels that too? I want to take you to a, a, a place in the Bible at a moment like that for God. Where we, where we see God in a place of pain that um, is an unusual glimpse. And I want to invite you, if you, even if you have your own Bible, and I always keep one on my phone so I have it with me wherever I am. Uh, I want to take us to the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, the sixth chapter at verse five. And listen, listen to me, or to, with me to God's word here. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. And so the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them animals, birds, and creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. Wow, is God feeling forsaken and sad at this moment? And then there's this really important verse. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And the scripture goes on to say, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. So, so God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So... Make yourself an ark, a boat of cypress. Make, make yourself a, an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch, which is tar, inside and out to keep the water away. And the ark is to be 300 cubits long and 50 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. And I'll say more about what a cubit is in a minute. Make a roof for it leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around so that air can get in and put a door in the side of the ark and make lower and middle and upper decks for I am going to bring flood waters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Everything on earth will perish but I will establish my covenant, my promise with you and you will enter the ark. You and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You're to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, animal, every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. And you're to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. 
And the story ends, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Well, I want to talk with you today about this story. I want to think about it, unpack it with you, and, and, and help it become something of a lens for us, a, a, a portal, as it were, into a really big and important idea for life that's just as important for the kids in this room as it is for the adults in this room that maybe is, is something really worth thinking about as we head into the fall. And that is, I want to think with you about the virtue, the goodness of work. Now, I know kids in here are thinking there's nothing fun about work. Homework, ah, oh, I can't believe we're already doing that again, Right? But I want to think with you about the goodness of work. I know some of us, uh, we work in schools. Uh, we work in our homes. We work in offices. We work uh, at easels. We work at keyboards. We work at drums. We work at, in, over manuscripts. We work on our character. All of us in some ways and in many different kinds of places are about working. The famous psychotherapist Sigmund Freud once observed that there really are two great impulses, two great drives that move human beings in every society and culture across time, and those two great impulses are to love and to work. That's what we all share in common with people of every skin color and country and tribe we, and age. We're all about those two things, loving and working. Now, Sigmund Freud, who was a psychologist, you know, uh, didn't invent that idea. That's a pretty foundational idea in the Bible, right? in the book of Genesis, that the defining characteristic of life in the Garden of Eden was that Adam and Eve had the chance to love and to work. And both of them were really good experiences in the beginning. And all of this comes from the character of God himself. This impulse to love and to work comes because God is a lover and he's a worker. And we're like him. The first verse of the entire Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 reads as follows. In the beginning, God created. God created. He created time and space and matter out of nothingness. He created energy and light and caused it to shine in the darkness. God brought the mountains up from the seafloor and turned them into dry land. He integrated life out of the dust of the universe and animated that life. He fashioned an environment such that life of all kinds could live and thrive. And exactly how God did this is still a mystery that humble scientists are debating but why God did this is a wonder and marvel that humble theologians think they've got a handle on. They believe that God did this because he is by nature a working, creating being. God manifests his character, his, his inner nature in works. God doesn't just merely think about good things or speak of goodness he actualizes it. He doesn't just wish that good things would happen. He works to make good things happen. 
God creates order out of chaos and light out of darkness and life out of emptiness. And then he calls all that he has done and made and worked at good. Here's the first big idea for you to hold on to. God enjoys working. He enjoys the stuff that he gets to do. In fact, if you said to God today, God, happy Labor Day, he wouldn't see that as an oxymoron or as an opposite thing. You know, sometimes people think, well, there's happiness on one side and then there's work on the other side. From God's point of view, these things go together. Work can become a source of profound joy and happiness. We know that because God just keeps celebrating the stuff he's working at. The whole early part of Genesis is is sort of God partying it up as he makes stuff. You know, he, he creates one thing and he goes, that's good. And then he creates something else and he says, oh, that's really good. And then after he eventually creates humanity at the end of it all, he says, that's very, very good. And that's an appropriate reaction to the things that God has made because the work of creation, the things the Lord has done, the work of creation is excellent beyond compare. Kids, I'm gonna talk to you today about three words that begin with E-X. And I want you to listen for them. The very first of them is excellence. The work of God is excellent beyond compare. And just to sort of give you a window into this, this is a task I wanna give to all the students and the children that are with us today, and adults, we can try this too. But when you leave this place, go find yourself a mirror. Maybe it's at home, maybe it's in the bathroom, at church. But I want you to get really close to the mirror and I want you to look at your eye. Either one is fine. I want you to look at that sort of colored ring around the black dot, the pupil, and then I want you to grab your phone, and I want you to turn on the flashlight on it, and I want you, as you're looking in the mirror, I want you to bring that light close to your eye, and then I want you to take it away, and I want you to watch as that colored ring opens and closes, expands and contracts about a hundred times faster than any mechanical lens that engineers have ever been able to make. Your eye is so excellent. It is so excellent. Or let me give you another example. I'm gonna ask you a question and I want you to speak out the answer. What was the name of the wife of the first president of the United States? Louder? Martha. Yeah. So every single one of you, when I asked the question, did a search. You searched your neurological database, that vast library that you have in your head of trivia and sports scores and, uh, and, and names and experiences you've had and life lessons and encounters along the way. You searched it, I mean, unbelievably fast, And you came up with that name, Martha. Martha Washington was George Washington's wife, right? And you did it really, really impressively quickly. Now here's a second question for you. What was the name of Martha Washington's cat? You laugh. The reason you're laughing is because you know you don't know the answer to that. We don't even know if she has a cat. We have no idea whether Martha ever had a cat, right? 
Now this is the really amazing thing. At an even faster speed than you retrieved the name of George Washington's wife, you knew you didn't know about the name of the cat. You knew what had never been entered into the database of your brain, right? Like that. I mean, a task that I'm not even sure computers today can do that can know that fast. They never know. They never had that information. That was never entered in. Your brain is an excellent piece of work. Even if you don't get a perfect score on the test, even if you don't get the grade you wanted on that particular assignment, never doubt for a moment that you are wonderfully and fearfully made. Excellently made. In fact, the psalmist says that. The psalmist says, how excellent is your work. How excellent is your name, Lord. How fearfully and wonderfully we have been made. O Lord, my Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. And you're one of those works. You're an excellent work. You're a beautiful work of God. Every one of you. The psalmist was really on to something here. And, and, and the work of creation is so excellent because it is intended to exalt God's goodness. The psalmist talks about the excellence of creation and it immediately reminds him of how incredible God is. That's the second of the EX words, friends, that I want you to remember. Excellence and exaltation. So the genius of these organic processes that run your body like you're sitting here right now, and, you're, and, and I know a lot of you are thinking, i got to keep concentrating on digesting my breakfast. <laughs> None of you are doing that. You don't have to think about it. You have been made so excellently with these processes that, are, that just go on. You don't have to, like, remember to breathe. Well, except when you're really scared. you got to remember to breathe then, right? But you have an amazing set of processes in your body. The, the capacity to enjoy and make music like we just experienced right here or the, the very abundance of all of the flora and that's the flowers and the plants and the fauna, that's the animals around the world, the, the genius of subatomic particles, the, the glory that we're just now getting to see through the Webb telescope. How many of you have seen some of those pictures? Aren't they amazing? This incredible incredible universe that we live in is so excellent and all of it is there to exalt which is to praise and give glory to the goodness of the God who created it it's this excellence is there to point us to the glory of God I have a son uh, he grew up here in the church. He was part of the student ministries here and the children's ministries. He's an organic chemistry PhD student right now, which means he like studies chemistry all the time and likes it, right? And, and all the study that he does points him to God. He has come out of this study process 
more committed as a follower of Jesus and God than ever before because of the excellence of the way he sees things are made. That's what God intended to happen. He wanted us to, 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 to let that excellence point us towards him and, and to the wonder of who he is so that we would seek out his wisdom, so that we would enjoy his love, so that we would enter and pursue a life of communion with him which is what you're doing when you're joining these groups and these communities and worshiping as you're seeking communion with him. But let me add this additional idea. The reason that God's word is excellent, work is excellent, and the reason that his work exalts his goodness is because it is the product of great exertion. That's the third EX word. What are, the, what are the other ones? Excellence, exaltation, exertion. That reminds me a little bit of a sign that I once saw on an employee bulletin board. In case of fire, please flee the building with the same wild abandon that occurs each day at quitting time. <laughs> there needs to be breaks in exertion. That's why this is a wonderful weekend for us, right? It's a break from exertion. And in fact, even that idea we got from God. Genesis says that at the end of the six days of creation, God took a Labor Day holiday. Not literally, it doesn't literally say that, but it does say literally that God took a rest. And most Bible scholars say that God did this to model the importance of human beings and animals and the land being able to rest, not being overworked. And, and that's really a very important idea, which is why we do need to take these breathers. But I think it's also conversely the case or the opposite idea that is part of the motivation for God's pattern here. I think that God rested also to underline the fundamental truth that the act of creation is costly. The act of doing really great things requires some sacrifice. Creation itself took what author Tim Hansel once called holy sweat. The title of today's message, holy sweat. Now, this, I think, is where all of the stuff we've been talking about lands in our lives. This is where it has actual implications for what you're gonna do next week and in the week after and in the months that follow that. And I wanna think about that with you. The Bible says that God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them in his own image. Which is to say that God made human beings to be working creative beings too. That's part of his image in us. He made us to love and to work. Uh, in fact, God made us in such a way that we would find our greatest enjoyment only when uh, we, like him, were working creatively and loving compassionately. And if you lose either one of those things, you, you start to lose a sense of purpose and joy in, in life. Life is not happy uh, if you lose those things over time. 
So we see the pattern laid out for us right there in Genesis. It's going to be in working the garden or caring for the other creatures or, or, or even doing our homework or our church work that the possibilities of life will be preserved and expanded for people. And so as long as human beings understand that the work of life is to be done with, with great exertion, with an eye for excellence, for the purpose of exalting the one who gave us the gift of life itself, as long as people are doing that, life goes better. Life goes better. I have a friend who used to be a pastor of this church. And 20 years he was at this church. John Klingeloffer, some of you knew John. John ran our missions program over, over the years. Well, he retired. He went to San Diego a year ago. Uh, it was going to be a wonderful time of walking the beach and just relaxing and chilling out and sort of uh, a total rest. But, you know, John discovered after time that he missed labor. And he wanted to be doing stuff that made a difference in the world again. And now he's working, helping to uh, raise money to support a wonderful uh, mission organization called Talking Bibles that provides audio Bibles for people that can't read all around the world. And I, and I chatted with him recently and the life has come back into him because he's, he's doing something meaningful. I know, I know a little old lady who, who who's lives by herself in her home and, and, and she has a list of missionaries that she's just praying for. And of other people she knows that she's praying for. And her work is praying for other people. And this is what brings her joy in life. What happens when human beings lose a sense of the role of work as God designed us to have it in life? Just suppose the devil... Just suppose there's a, there's a supernatural opponent to God who wants to wreck human life because God made it and he wants to wreck it. Just suppose that opponent successfully convinced people to ignore all this stuff about work. Suppose he convinced them that, that they didn't even have to use God as their model in life. It didn't matter what God did or if, if, if he was a creative being. Ignore all of that. You don't have to be like God. Suppose he convinced people that they needed no pattern for life other than their own imagination. Suppose the devil could get men and women to think that there are actually no universal moral values at all. That 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 goodness and, and evil are kind of like beauty and taste. They're all in the eye or the tongue of the beholder. <laughs> you can sort of make this stuff up on your own. Just suppose that one of the biggest outcomes of that deception, that big lie, was that people lost sight of or threw out the virtue of work as God had designed them to experience it. What would that do how might that play itself out? What would be the effects in practice? Well, I want to suggest quickly three ways I think it might land in, in our lives. First, people might stop viewing their work, whether it's at school or in the marketplace or at home or someplace else. They would stop viewing it as a means to exalt God, as a way of bringing glory to God, and instead sort of begin to do these things for lesser purposes. Uh, for some of us, work would simply become a boring means to a paycheck. For others of us, it, work would simply become a place to, to exalt ourselves. 
to, to draw attention to ourselves, to win influence or admiration or an adrenaline rush of some kind. I imagine there'd be some people for whom work would, meet, would lose all meaning altogether and it would just become this hideous burden that ground up our souls. Uh, I, I, one of my recent uh, binge-watching uh, TV series is the program Severance. It's up for a bunch of Emmy Awards uh, next week. And if you've watched this, you know that this is actually a story about work. And in this particular story, uh, human beings have had implanted in their heads this chip that, that severs, breaks apart, separates um, their, their work consciousness from their consciousness of everything else in life. Of, of, of the beauty of life, of all the relationships of life. Their work literally has no purpose. And the life they're living in this program, if you've, if you've watched it, is so hollow and so empty and so dark. It's not a good life when we lose our sense of the role, the relationship between work and a higher purpose to exalt God. I think secondly, without a good, I'm calling it theology of work, people might begin to actually expect all of the fruits of goodness without exerting themselves for it. That would be one of the effects if people lost a vision of what God had in mind. Some, for example, would cheat and steal from others rather than really working for honest gains. Others would, would, would tend to toss in the towels, uh, the towel on their friendships. They'd give up on friendships or, 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 or marriages or whatever. When it, when, when it took a lot of work when it took a lot of exertion to do those things, they would just say, ah, it's not going to put in the work anymore. Other, uh, other people maybe who, who were really able-bodied and were very capable of working would still just expect the government to feed and clothe them while they lived lives of idleness. They just would much rather watch TV than, than, than work. Some people would, would demand complete intimacy with another person without the exertion of complete commitment to that person. And others still, when faced with tough times, would simply give up on life or just check out. That would be one of the things that could happen if we lost sight of, of, of the role that work was meant to play in our lives. And, and when that original commitment to exalting God and to exerting ourselves really began to go, it would not be long before a third disastrous effect kicked in. Excellence would deteriorate on a lot of fronts. Educational performance would start to slip. Trust in leadership would go. Families would, would find it harder and harder to pass on virtuous character to the next generation. Business ethics would decay badly. The quality of goods and services would begin to slide. The content of mass entertainment uh, would degrade. And the ensuing moral and social chaos that would progressively come from all of these losses would create a really, really big problem. The Apostle Paul said that people might actually exchange the truth of God for a lie and they would worship and serve the creature more than the creator. They would serve themselves more than they would try and serve others or God. He said that could happen. That could eventually happen in society. And if things continued in that vein long enough, 
It's even possible, I suppose, that the scenario that gets described in our Bible text for today, the story we read earlier together, it might actually come to pass. Humanity's wickedness, the Bible says, might become so great that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts would be only evil all the time. Now, this sounds crazy. How could people be living a life that's only evil all the time? Well, it's possible, I suppose, that you wouldn't know you were doing it because everybody else was doing it. It's possible that it would start small and grow bigger and bigger and bigger by degrees and you wouldn't notice how far away from the good you drifted. After the first service this morning, I had a, a couple in their late 80s come up to me and one of, the woman that was talking to me had tears in her eyes and she says, I just hurt because I still remember when life in our country had a goodness to it where people could talk to each other and work together. It was never perfect. But I don't think people today even get how far away from God's purposes we've drifted. There might finally come a day when the God who once celebrated the creation of his race, remember God said about the human race? Very good, very good, he said. There might come a day when after he's given them chance after chance after chance to come back to him, he's blessed their country, he's given them resources like no other human beings in the history of planet Earth have ever experienced and they still turn away from him and they're still so harsh towards each other. There might come a day when God becomes so deeply troubled, the scripture says, that his heart would become so filled with pain, the Bible says, that he would look from heaven and say, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race, for I am grieved that I have made them. I worry sometimes that we may be living in the days of Noah and don't realize it because of what's happened to our hearts. You know, I, if you've been around, around Christ Church for a while, you know I have never been a huge fan of, of fire and brimstone sermons, right? That's just not my typical MO. I want to talk about the goodness of God and be drawn to that. But I want to tell you that there are times these days when I look at my own heart and I watch how people are being treated in the violence of our world today and the, and the state of, of so many dimensions. That, and I wonder, gosh, maybe, Dan, I need to buy an asbestos hard hat. Asbestos is a substance that keeps heat away from you. Because maybe fire's going to fall. And then I remember what Jesus said. Jesus said that just before he came again to make all things new, the pattern of Noah would repeat itself. The world would become that wicked and insensible to how far it had strayed. God promised Noah he would never again end all life with a great flood. God promised that. That was what the rainbow was about. But, but Jesus suggests there's going to come a day when, the, when there will be judgment, when there will be accountability, uh, and it will be just as severe for those who do not seek excellence or exalt God 
or exert themselves in a serious way to just honor this amazing life he's given us, take care of this planet he's given us, take care of these people he's given us. That's why I find myself particularly eager to know the answer to this key question in the text. Why do he spare Noah? What set Noah apart that made him decide to, to provide a way for Noah, a lifeboat for Noah? The Bible says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And I want to know what that was because I want to be one of those people. And I bet you do too. So what was it about Noah? Well, let me just hazard an informed guess. I think it might have been because Noah embodied the virtue of work. And what I mean by that is he embodied a view of life that would make him the right person to start the whole project over with. God could count on him to be somebody that would help restart the project of life after the flood. Now you'll notice when I say the virtue of work, I did not say the virtue of works. It wasn't because God looked at Noah and saw he does such good works that therefore I should save him. And this is probably the most important thing I'm gonna say to you guys today. Nobody gets saved by their good works. It's, it's a marvelous thing to do good work and to try and do right. But we, don't, we could never stack up enough moral merit badges. We could never get enough holiness credits to close the gap between the awesome glory and holiness of God and, the, and human, the human condition. And the good news is we don't have to. Jesus crossed that distance. Jesus did the ultimate work upon the cross and gave his life for us that we would be forgiven. In the, in the hope that we would, out of gratitude, come to him and follow him as our loving Lord for life. That's really good news. Nobody gets saved by their works. And if you have never, ever before in your life said, Lord, I give up trying to prove it by my goodness. I give up fooling myself that I ever could be that good. And I simply accept with gratitude, what you did on the cross for me, and I want to follow you as my Lord. If you've never said that before, never offered that prayer, never had that conversation with God, do it today. Let this that's the best labor of this day, is to, is to have that relationship with God, to, to know that you're on the lifeboat because you want to be with him. Have that conversation today. So let me come back to Noah and move us towards a close here, if I may. It strikes me that Noah possessed an attitude towards his life's work that is instructive to us and can give us clues as to how you and I can take hold of God's favor as we move into these, uh, the activities that we're going into this fall. Here's what I think the scripture tells us. Uh, three things really quickly. It tells us first, Noah walked faithfully with God. Actually, it literally says, Noah faithfully walked with God. In other words, translation, he considered all of his work, each step of his life, all of his relationships, every activity that he undertook, he did all of it with the mindset of honoring God, who he saw as by his side. 
You know how sometimes people get into the mentality, and I, I do it myself, where I think, well, I think about God when I'm in church. I think of God when I'm watching online, you know? But then I kind of go out and I get, uh, I'm living my life on my own. I'm living my life with Frank and with Susan, and, you know, so forth. Noah lived every moment of his life, mainly conscious. I'm living my life with God. I've got all these other people too, but it's God I want to please. He walked faithfully with God. Do you, will you walk out into the world today and the week to come and the months after that, conscious that he is with you always? Like Steve was saying, he he will not forsake you. He's there. He's paying attention to your life. Will you do that? Secondly, we're told that Noah was a righteous man, a righteous man. One of the principal ways that Noah exalted God was by committing himself to the pursuit of moral excellence, which is what the Bible means by the word righteousness. Uh, He tried to live by a moral code that was beautiful, that was more excellent than, than, than many people in the world around him were, were doing that. In fact, Noah was so committed to that pursuit that in spite of the fact that he was still an imperfect guy, and believe me, he was. He made lots more mistakes. If you go on and read the story after the, the ark, Noah was an imperfect guy. But, but compared to the way other people were living their life, he looked blameless, the scriptures say. He looked blameless uh, because he was more aligned with God's desires than other people. Here's the question. How do you and I look in the comparison with the ways of the world? When other people look at our lives, do they say, oh, wow, you're salt in, the, in a world of decay. You're light in a world of darkness. Or do they go, oh, wait, you're pretty much just like everybody else. And it's not all bad to be like other people. But do they notice the character of God in the way in the excellence with which you are living out your moral choices in life. Thirdly and finally, the scriptures say that Noah did everything just as God commanded him. I want you to think about that with me. Because, you know, you, you hear a Bible story so often, it, you kind of, it glazes for you. Think about what Noah did. He's in the middle of a desert. It's blue skies all the time. There's not a cloud anywhere. And he builds a boat. Like bigger than a football field. When you're watching the college games this weekend, just imagine a boat bigger than that field. And then he assembles like the biggest zoo ever. I used to live in San Diego. We had a great zoo there. He builds one far more impressive than the San Diego Zoo. And, and, and in the face of ridicule, vandalism, and constant opposition for doing the thing he was doing, Noah got up every single morning, grabbed a, ca- a hammer, strapped on a tool belt, and walked out to the work site and just kept doing it. He did all that the Lord God had commanded him. He exerted himself to do excellently that which would exalt God. Are you willing to do the same? Can I do the same? I don't know where you're going to work in this week ahead. 
most important that you do. Um, but I will say that God needs you and me, wherever that is, to, to represent, to live out the virtue of work as he intended us to do. Because it's the way God himself does life. These things he asks of us, it's only because it's his image in us. It's the way he does life. Our workplaces and our world today, I submit to you, need people who exert themselves even when it's not easy to do. Our world needs individuals who will strive persistently, perseveringly for excellence in a good enough kind of world. It needs servants who see their occupations not as a means of merely earning a paycheck or advancing themselves or getting into college, but as one of the primary ways that we get a chance to exalt God, to give glory to him by the quality of what we do. The question is, will you be such a person? Will you be a Noah in your time? Will I be? After we've taken today and tomorrow off, and thank goodness we get to, will we go out this week to the work to which God has called us, and will we work up some holy sweat? I sure hope so. Would you pray with me? Lord, we just thank you that in creating this amazing universe, and in giving us this extraordinary life, and in dying for us upon a cross, and even in coming again one day to make everything new again. We thank you that in all of these things and ways, you've done the really heavy lifting. You've done the very hardest work that we could never do. In awestruck gratitude for who you are and what you've done, we resolve to go forth from this place with a newfound passion to do the work that we can do, that you have given us to do, and to give that work our very best. For it is in the name of Jesus we pray. And all God's children said, Amen.